Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight is Nicole. Colleen is really sick this week, and she couldn't be here. We tried to record a few times, but she just couldn't do it. So Nicole saved the day, and it's pinch hitting for Colleen. So thank you so much, Nicole, and how are you doing tonight? I'm good, and I'm glad I can help, although I hope Colleen is feeling better soon. Um, I'm looking forward to going through this episode with you. How are you? I'm good. I was able to get on my motorcycle briefly um, on Sunday, I couldn't really ride this week because I actually got a tattoo done, so I have to be pretty careful with that. But other than that, not much to report. All right, so on to the show. Velma Barfield was an American serial killer living in North Carolina. She had a rough upbringing and escaped her situation by marrying young. The marriage was overall a happy one until an operation led to a behavioral change in Velma. The once-happy couple turned bitter and argued constantly. This went on for years, and one day Velma and the kids left the house and returned later to find that their house had burned down and Velma's husband was dead. That would be the first of multiple suspicious deaths that Velma was connected to. There would be four more before someone placed a tip to the police. After the investigation was completed, questions still remained. Who was Velma? What made her decide to kill people? And are there even answers to these questions? Margie Velma Ballard was born in rural South Carolina on October 29, 1932. As a child, she went by her middle name Velma, and that was a name that stuck throughout her adult life. Velma was the second of nine children. Her family relocated to North Carolina when she was very young to Robeson County, This area was hit particularly hard during the Great Depression and already was economically depressed before that. So there wasn't a ton of job-creating industries in the area at that time, and not much has changed in present day. Growing up, her family was very poor, and they, like much of the rest of the country, were suffering great financial hardship due to the Great Depression. They didn't have running water or electricity, and they didn't even have an outhouse. They used chamber pots to go to the bathroom. During her childhood, her father was very abusive, both verbally and physically, towards her. Her parents also did not have a good marriage because her father's abuse extended beyond just Velma. Velma was very resentful of her mother because she felt she never did anything to stop the abuse. In fact, it was thought that she blamed her mom for her failure to act as much as she did her dad for beating her. Some accounts describe a very complicated relationship between Velma and her dad. Although he was very abusive, she expressed that he would sometimes buy things for her, and she said that she did love him. 
This isn't unheard of for children of abusive parents. That situation can be very complicated and difficult to understand if you're on the outside of it. Even though Velma grew up in a poorer area, by the time she was in school, she realized that her family was much poorer than her classmates. Noting the financial difference, she began stealing from her dad to try and keep up with the other kids. Her stealing habit progressed, and she eventually stole $80 from her elderly neighbor. Her father found out and beat her so severely that she was never caught stealing again while living under his roof. Velma loved school, which she started in 1939. She was smart and did well, and school was her regular escape from her home life. In an attempt to escape life at home, she married her high school sweetheart in 1949 when she was only 17. She married Thomas Burke, her classmate, and dropped out of school to be a homemaker. Velma was a stay-at-home mom to her two kids, and by all accounts, their lives were very happy. Thomas worked to support the family, and Velma stayed home and was engaged in the kids' lives at school and in the extracurricular activities. She loved her kids and wanted to be as involved with their lives as possible, and she quickly became the most active parent in her kids' classes. As the kids got older, Velma decided to take a job at a textile plant. As far as anyone could tell, they still had a fairly picturesque life. The kids were more independent because they were teenagers, and Velma had more free time. In 1966, Thomas was in a car accident and sustained head injuries. He was unable to work, so Velma became the sole earner of the entire family. In the early 60s, Velma started having some reproductive health issues, And after many doctor's visits and without a real diagnosis, it was recommended that she have a hysterectomy to try to relieve her pain and symptoms. I'm not exactly sure what was wrong, and I'm thinking in the early 1960s, they probably didn't really know either. Because they made the decision to perform a hysterectomy, I'm wondering if she had like endometriosis or something like that. Endometriosis isn't well understood today, so I can only imagine how little over 50 years ago it was understood. It seemed like these issues were long-term and really painful. She had a hysterectomy in 1964. Velma would have been about 32 years old. After the operation, she expressed that she was feeling insecure in her womanhood. She was unable to have children and struggled with feeling that she wasn't enough for her husband. In addition to that, she developed chronic back pain. These two events led to a marked behavioral change within Velma. She also started to take medication to manage her back pain and quickly ended up becoming dependent on it. In addition to pain medication, Velma was taking Valium and Librium. Both are benzos used to treat anxiety and both can cause dependency fairly quickly. Librium in particular is a powerful medication that is usually prescribed as a short-term solution for anxiety that is so severe it is disabling for the person suffering from it. It would later be uncovered that Velma was going to multiple doctors to get duplicate prescriptions for her painkillers and her anxiety medications. Coinciding with Velma's behavior change and drug dependency, her husband Thomas began to drink and this led to pretty much constant arguing between the two. Their marriage began to fall apart as the two started to present each other. 
Complaining turned into arguments that would last days, and the couple was on the brink of divorce. One day, in April of 1969, Thomas and Velma had been arguing, and Thomas was very drunk. Velma took the kids and got out of the house for a while. I'm assuming she said she needed to leave so she could cool off or something so Thomas could sober up. When they left, Thomas was passed out on the couch. When they came back, they found their house had caught fire. It was put out, but it was too late. The structure was destroyed, and Thomas was dead. The house was insured, and Velma got a payout, and the death was always thought to be a bit suspicious. Less than a year later, Velma married a widower named Jennings Barfield in 1970. She changed her last name to Barfield and used it for the rest of her life. The two had a turbulent marriage. Velma's drug addiction drove a wedge between them, and he routinely took her to the hospital for overdosing. Jennings threatened to leave her if she didn't get her addiction under control. But the two weren't married long before Jennings died of heart failure in 1971. He had heart failure before he met Velma, so his death was not considered to be suspicious at the time. After Jennings died, Velma started caring for her elderly mother, Lillian Bullard. Velma had never gotten along with her mother very well and blamed her for a lot of the issues from her childhood. In early 1974, Lillian was admitted to the hospital because she was suffering from vomiting, nausea, and intense diarrhea. The symptoms seemed to come... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Out of nowhere and then disappeared. Lillian made a full recovery. Later, shortly after Christmas, in 1974, Lillian fell ill again. Similar symptoms, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and was rushed to the hospital. This time, she didn't recover, and a couple hours later, she died. Lillian passed away on December 30th, 1974. After the death of her mother, Velma decided to take work caring for elderly people. In 1976, She had two clients, a couple named Montgomery and Dolly Edwards. On January 29, 1977, Montgomery started experiencing nausea and vomiting and died later that day. Just over a month later, Dolly experienced identical symptoms, seemingly out of nowhere, and died later that day. Two months later, Velma took another job with an elderly couple, This time, she was working for 76-year-old Record Lee while she recovered from a broken leg. Velma was only going to work for the Lees while Record recovered. 
On June 4th, Record's husband, John Henry, began experiencing extreme nausea and vomiting and had severe stomach pain. He died that day at the hospital. Rowland Stewart Taylor was Velma's boyfriend in early 1978. Not only was he Velma's boyfriend, but he was actually a relative of Dolly's who had passed away the previous year. Stewart was a 56-year-old widower who had owned a tobacco farm. In late January 1978, Stewart began to fall ill. He was suffering from symptoms similar to the other people that had crossed paths with Velma, but to a lesser degree. When Velma volunteered to nurse him back to health, he was released to her care. Over the next few days, Stewart's condition worsened, and he was finally taken back to the hospital where he died. When Stewart died in the same way that Lillian, Montgomery, Dolly, and John Henry had all died, there was a clear pattern. That's five people in less than four years. Velma's sister called the police and submitted an anonymous tip. A police detective had received a call at his house from a hysterical woman saying that the police needed to stop her and she's a murderer. The detective assumed it was a prank call and told the caller to give him a call at the station. When he went into work, he saw that there were no new homicide reports and put the caller in the back of his mind. Then a few hours later, he received a call on his work line. The woman had called again, this time much more calm and ready to talk. She said that she knew someone who had killed her boyfriend, just like she had killed their mom. The caller said that the murderer was her sister, and her sister's name was Velma. Velma's sister alluded that there could be more murders, and that there have been multiple people close to Velma who had died in the same way. At the same time the anonymous tip came in, Stewart's family was suspicious of his death. Investigators ordered an autopsy to be performed on Stewart based on the request of the family, and the results of the autopsy showed that he had arsenic in his system. Velma was arrested and charged with murder. Velma eventually admitted to his murder. She said that she had put arsenic-based rat poison in his beer when she became nervous that he was catching on to the fact that she had been stealing money from several of his accounts and writing bad checks. Velma had never addressed her drug addiction, and she was essentially working to support her habit. And she was using her access to Stewart's accounts to steal money to pay for prescription drugs. People were shocked at the news that Velma was arrested for murder. Once it was announced that she was probably responsible for Stewart's murder, people who knew her assumed she must also be responsible for all the other similar deaths as well. What was even more shocking was that at each funeral, Velma was in attendance and in full grieving mode at all of them. The bodies of the people in the connected deaths were exhumed. Thomas Burke, her first husband, who died in the house fire, technically died of smoke inhalation. But there was arsenic in his system as well. She did receive insurance money from the claim she filed when the house burned down. Then Lillian's body was exhumed. Arsenic was found when her remains were tested. That was when one of Velma's brothers recalled an, an interesting and troubling situation from Christmas the year Lillian died, just a few days before her death. Lillian had taken one of her sons aside and showed him a letter she had gotten from a finance company saying that she had a loan payment on her car that was overdue and she was in danger of having her car repossessed. 
This was strange because Lillian had paid off the car years ago. Her son told her it was probably some clerical error and she shouldn't worry. With the presence of arsenic in her system and Velma stealing money from Stuart, the conversation with Lillian and her car payment came up again. Further investigations showed that Velma had taken a title loan out on the car in her mother's name. It was just a couple of days after this conversation that Lillian fell ill and then died. Investigators then tested the remains of Jennings, Montgomery, Dolly, and John Henry and found traces of arsenic in each of them as well. She had been using all of them to pass bad checks to fund her drug addiction. Overall, she was connected to each of the murders. She officially confessed to four, her mother Lillian, Dolly, John Henry Lee, and Stuart. She was only charged with one count of murder, first-degree murder, in the death of Stuart Taylor. Her defense argued that she did not mean to kill Stuart. Yeah, she did poison him, but that was only so she could use his illness as a distraction to cover up the money she stole. They claimed she figured that while he was sick, he wouldn't notice the money was gone and she could replace it before he recovered. A first-degree murder charge is a capital offense, meaning it carries a death penalty. In order for a first-degree murder charge to stick, prosecutors need to prove intent in the perpetrator's actions. The case the defense was presenting was setting Velma up for a second-degree murder charge at best. If the defense could poke holes in the prosecutor's theory and cast doubt on intent, Velma would have a chance at being acquitted. Velma's defense attorney had never tried a capital case before he was handed this one. Although she was only charged with one murder, the evidence linking the other poisonings to her was ruled admissible at trial. Her defense lawyer tried to argue that this evidence would be unfairly prejudicial, but prosecutors argued that the other deaths showed her intent with the poisonings. The prosecution put both medical personnel and Stewart's family on the stand who testified to how gruesome his death was. Furthermore, medical personnel testified that if Velma had told them what she had done, they could have administrated life-saving antidote. Instead, she stayed with the family and acted worried and said nothing. The defense brought up Velma's long-standing drug addiction. Doctors were put on the stand to testify about the possible side effects and the interactions of the drugs she was taking. The defense attempted to paint a picture that Velma did what she did to hide her addiction and that her actions were due to her dependency on the drugs. They also tried to argue that the interaction of the drugs that she had taken made her clinically insane. Until being put on the stand, the defense tried to portray Velma as a sweet, nice, church-going grandmother who was devoted to her family, despite her dark secret. Once she was on the stand, the jury saw a different side of Velma. The defense took a risk by putting her on the stand, but he believed that he could use her confused, misguided thinking to their advantage and that it would be clear that she wasn't thinking soundly when she had poisoned Stuart. This worked when she was being questioned by the defense, but when the prosecution cross-examined her, it all fell apart. The DA came at her hard, and she responded in kind. She went from sweet old lady to cold and arrogant. She suggested that the autopsies were wrong and that they were all wasting their time at the trial. During closing arguments, Velma acted even more bizarrely. 
When the prosecutor finished, she very sarcastically made a big show of silently applauding and cheering for him. Her family was openly disappointed because they knew how this would look to the jury and were correct in assuming it would be bad for her. The jury found her guilty of first-degree murder, and they recommended the death penalty. The judge agreed, and she was sentenced to death. Now, North Carolina did not have a death row for women prisoners. When Velma was sentenced, she was the only female on death row in the state. She was sent to a high-security prison that deals with inmates who are escape risk or mentally ill. Early in her prison stay, Velma went through drug withdrawals. She had been supplied with many of her accustomed medications during her trial. Her first days as a condemned prisoner was spent without them, and she showed the classic symptoms of cold turkey, lack of appetite, insomnia, nausea, cold sweats, and a splitting headache. The doctor who treated her gave her antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. Then gradually over a period of a year, she was weaned off of them. To the extent possible, Velma made her cell into a home. She put up photographs of her children and grandchildren along with knickknacks that she crocheted and inspirational religious slogans. Velma became a born-again Christian while she was in prison. She had lived an outwardly Christian life outside of prison, but then said she never was truly a Christian before she went to prison. Her conversion was greeted with skepticism by many, including the families of her victims. After all, she had spoken of Jesus and salvation when they knew her and when she was poisoning their loved ones. Her Christian faith had always been a fraud, they believed, and it continued to be one. It was just a ploy to try to save her own life. There were some who were impressed with her born-again claims. She attracted some high-profile attention. The well-known evangelist Billy Graham and his wife Ruth would come to believe Velma Barfield was their sister in Christ, and Ruth Graham kept in frequent touch with her by mail. Velma was seen as a good role model for the other inmates. She was allowed access to them, even though the rules technically stated she was not allowed contact with anyone. She also started writing letters for the other prisoners who were not literate. Her death sentence was appealed. In June 1980, it was ruled that her conviction and sentence was constitutional. Velma tried to use her newfound, or found again, Christianity to appeal to the courts, but it was denied. When her execution day arrived, Velma dressed in the clothes she had chosen and gotten approved by the prison. Then she checked her hair in the mirror and stepped into the hallway. She was taken to a preparation room and asked if she had any last words. She did. Velma said, and I quote, I want to say that I am sorry for all the hurt that I have caused. I know that everybody has gone through a lot of pain, all the families connected, and I'm sorry. I want to thank everybody who has been supporting me all these six years. I want to thank my family for standing with me through all this, and my attorneys, and all the support to me. Everybody the people with the prison department. I appreciate everything, their kindness and everything that they have shown me during these six years. She was then brought into the chamber. She was given a sedative to make her sleep and then administered another chemical that would stop her heart. She was told to count backwards from 100 and she got to 97 before she fell asleep. 
At 2.15 a.m. on November 2, 1984, she was pronounced dead. So on to final thoughts. This is the first woman serial killer misconduct has covered, and it was really interesting to read about. I don't know that I can pinpoint what made her murder. That probably can be said for all of the killers that we've covered. Um, It sounds like her drug use and her upbringing may have contributed. But I think the the best explanation is that it was a combination of it all. I can be skeptical of turning to religion and trying to use that as a reason to get someone out of prison. And I don't want to imply that Velma's religious discovery wasn't real. I think that does happen for inmates in prison. But she never got the chance to prove how she would act outside of prison. So we will never really know if she was truly rehabilitated or not. And quite frankly... I don't think it really matters to her victims if she was a born-again Christian once she was in prison. Another interesting note is that women serial killers often use poison to kill and kill for financial gain, which Velma definitely did. Overall, I go back and forth with how I feel about the death penalty, but I do believe that she was guilty, and I do believe that she intentionally murdered her victims. Yeah, super interesting case for sure. Kind of crazy to think that you and I, actually, Nicole, were were three when when she was put to death. And I had never heard of Velma before until this case. Me either. Yeah, it's crazy. And through reading through her early life, I was waiting for there to be something big, I guess, to explain her later killing spree. And besides her abusive upbringing, there really wasn't much except, I guess, the drug addiction. But I I don't necessarily think that makes people kill. People are going to do what they want for various reasons, financial gain, drugs, whatever. So she's probably just a person that had little care for human life and used their lives as tools to get more drugs. So I don't know. I find her quite, quite evil, really. And that's it for this week's episode. We hope that you enjoyed hearing about Velma. We have a few five-star reviews to shout out. Thank you to T-Mick, Safira80, and RudeBoy1011 for taking the time to review the show. We are glad you're liking it. If you have a second and are liking the show as well, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out a lot, and plus, we like to hear what you guys think. We also have a new Patreon supporter we want to thank. A huge thank you to Ariel for pledging to the show. If you're wanting to support the show or check out our merch, head over to patreon.com forward slash misconductpodcast. Well, that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us. Head over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. If you're not already a member, join and one of our mods will add you ASAP. And we love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. We also want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes for our intro and outro music. Be sure to check them out on Bandcamp to listen to more of their stuff. If you have a case suggestion, let us know about it. You can email us at misconductpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to listen through to the end for a trailer from one of our pod friends. It's about damn crime. And we will see you next week. Very drunk. <laughs> <laughs>
We're also the host of It's About Damn Crime. A true crime podcast, but with a twist. As minorities ourselves, we wanted to focus more on minority crimes. You know, all the stories you hear way less about. Check us out on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasting on. And remember, there's a lot of desert out there. Cheers. Salud. (laughs) (laughs) If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.